0: Don't
1: let me think about
2: it. That would be wrong. Welcome
1: to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Tonight, we are bringing you the second episode in our Manarchy Magazine Presents uh, Perfect Edge Books and Lazy Fascist Press reading that took place in Boston on Thursday, March 7th, International Poster Gallery. Uh, we brought you the first episode, which included. Ben Lurie, Cameron Pierce, Kirsten Aileen, and Michael Paul Gonzalez with a little extra bonus content from Michael Paul Gonzalez, and tonight we're going to bring you the whole rest of what happened. Yep, so we're going to kick off part
3: two with, uh, with some readings. So you are going to hear from Caleb J. Ross, no stranger to this show. Um, he is currently with Perfect Edge Books, uh, who have re-released Stranger Will, uh, you can go back, oh, I don't know, 120 or so episodes and listen to our review and our
1: original interview with Caleb J. Ross if you'd like. That's right. Following Caleb was a little bit of a uh, last-minute uh, last minute addition to the event. Brian Allen Carr, uh, a lazy fascist uh, name, um, who wrote a book called Short Bus, and um, he was there reading uh, kind of, yeah, last-minute, but uh, definitely kind of one of the crowd favors of the evening. Oh yeah, he was a little on the uh, on the energetic side. <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> when we were there, I was kind of looking at Caleb's setup he had with uh, the YouTube live stream thing that he was doing, and you could see if you clicked on something, you could see the comments that people were making while they were watching it. And um, uh, David David James Keaton was watching, and he he had some. He's like, I got to get that guy's book, okay. so. Yeah, it's definitely something to, to enjoy. And then Phil George, just not to be outdone,
3: <laughs> reads his entire story um, uh, from What Precision Such Restraint, which, by the way, coolest book title I've read in a while, What Precision Such Restraint. Um, he uh, does it all in a falsetto kind of voice through the whole thing. So, <laughs> See, maybe if maybe if Brian Allen Carr would have gone first, it really would have kind of driven up the,
1: the, the quota there on, on what you had to bring for a reading. I know, right? Um, The story that Phil read, by the way, is called Behold the Antique Show, Vomit as a Talent. Thank you for Um, pulling that out of wherever you pulled that out of. The book that I'm looking at right now, What Precision, Such Restraint, which has a pretty cool cover to it, by the way, as well. Mm -hmm. So
3: um, Phil Jordan is the editor at uh, Perfect Edge Books, and uh, if you stick
1: around after the readings, we're going to have some bonus content uh, from Caleb J. Ross and from Phil Jordan. That's right. Once more, I just want to make sure that we mention um, this was an event hosted by Manarchy Magazine and Palevia um with readers from both Perfect Edge Books and Lazy Fascist Press. And they were nice enough to let us like throw some recorders around and actually like, you know, take it down. Yeah, that was all Manarchy cuz you know those other guys wouldn't have done anything for us. Yeah. Yeah, they would have just locked the door and looked at us all duty. Well, you
3: know, I was actually thinking about this and I'm sure it's just me being me. But I, I was sitting there. I think we were sitting in a bar, and I was looking around. And it was very obvious that almost everybody in this place was was an AWP person. Yeah. And, and like, I didn't want to talk to anybody and tell them we're, we're book reviewers, because you have to understand, like, we're the snooty guys because we just get to like judge them the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes I think like, yeah, people are cool with Booked, but I think in some ways they kind of look at us like you know, like we're like we're the we're the Zaggit people, you know?
1: Yeah, like punks. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and then we could just like say if it was good or not. Not that we have any any you know thing to base that on. That our opinions are of any value more than anyone else's, but we walk around like they are. We tell you what to read. We do tell you what to read. Mm-hmm. Um, We're going to tell you what to listen to as well. We are. You're going to listen to this. Here is Gordon Highland, booked alum, um, introducing Caleb J. Ross. Uh,
4: coming up next, we have a man who looks like DJ Qualls, uh, for better or worse. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh,
0: DJ. Yeah.
4: This is Caleb J. Ross, he's my neighbor. Uh, he has a BA in English Lit and Creative Writing from Emporia State University, who I heard l- lost their accreditation shortly thereafter. I <laughs> uh, his fiction and nonfiction have appeared widely both online and in print. He's the author of five books of fiction and is a core contributor to the Booktube Bitcast. He's a columnist at Manarchy Magazine, just like a lot of us, and is the creator of the Burning Books Channel, a YouTube channel featuring humorous book reviews, literary skits, writing advice, and rants. He's really good at writing his own bio. <laughs> <laughs> Visit his official page at www.calebjross.com. DJ Qualls, aka, okay, <laughs> well, uh, I
2: know this is super meta. Everybody say cheese. Cheese. It's video. It doesn't have the same effect. So, so you guys are wrong. I'm going to put this down. They were right to clap, by the way. This is for my uh, for my own personal use. Late at night. <laughs> I just yelled that right in the microphone. I'm sorry. All right. So thank you all for coming out. Um, I just want to reiterate everything that, that Phil said about uh, Perfect Edge Books, about manarchy, about everything he's been talking about, because they are... I've been with a lot of publishers. Uh, Perfect Edge, and they just, they do it right, and I'm really, really proud to be a member of that family. Um, so uh, so yeah, that makes my nocturnal dreams about Phil a little weird. What's the opposite of edible when you're in love with your father, is that a thing? Anybody? Electra. What is it? Electra. Electra. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <normal>. <laughs> All right, well, I'm gonna read. Um, actually, uh, the, uh, Perfect Edge re-released Stranger Will. It was released, uh, I'm like, Couple years ago, I think they re-released it and allowed me to put in some uh, some additional content in the back, some stuff that sort of speaks to the theme of the book. Um, it deals a lot with abortion, but in a and not too a, a depressing way. Oh, that sounds weird. Um, it's like, a <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a book. It's it's really it's kind of interesting. It's one of those books that I could never have written again. I wrote this before I had a child. Now I have a four-year-old child and. It's a way different kind of book now that I have a kid. Um, I think it just you know just the idea of, of abortion in general is kind of is is tough. Um, although my kid's an ass, so maybe it's not. <laughs> uh, so anyway, this thing I'm going to read here, um, one of the appendix uh, at the end, is called "Strippers with My Son," and it's uh, from a piece that was originally uh, called "Even Strippers Bleed Red" from uh, from Undy Press, which I'm not sure if they're around anymore. So, and this is a nonfiction piece. This is a nonfiction piece. Non-fiction piece. Um, okay. Is it true? <laughs> it's nonfiction. <laughs> right. So, no not. All right. I can safely assume that I am the only person to have ever sat alone in a Hooters restaurant reading Lisa Zunshine's Why We Read Fiction, an exploration, an exploration of, among other things, how the human brain has trouble distinguishing the world of fiction from the world of reality. I am, not, I am certainly not, however, the first person to have sat alone in a Hooters restaurant suffering the book's thematic confusion. Despite what my textbook academic luggage may imply, I too play the are they or aren't they game anytime I am approached by a set of boobs, especially a set of boobs with tit money on the line. A good friend of mine was set to be married in less than one week. I arrived at this endowed bachelor party starting block about a, about an hour and a half early, forcing me to decide should I be the creepy gentleman sitting alone reading a book at Hooters or should I be the creepy gentleman sitting alone eating food at Hooters? I opted for the former, though plenty of kindred loner around me chose the latter, chewing alone, gawking alone, treating the experience as a cheap substitute to the 20 dollars cover strip clubs that pock the Topeka peripheral, Topeka, Kansas. Uh, one of which, the outhouse, was scheduled as our stop number two, and we were, as one bachelor party member stated, once the group finally coalesced in the Hooters' parking lot, running late. I respected this man's desire for punctuality, though I was no less confused by it, and helped usher the group to our waiting van. Leaving Hooters, I turned back to the solo men, wishing them all well under my breath, and almost, in- and almost invited a particularly sad looking gentleman to join us. He licked hot sauce from his fingers, the table plateless, silverwareless, and mugless, leaving me to assume his wallet empty and his shame non existent. But what's sadder, leaving the relative sanitary pseudo peep show that is Hooters. Or dragging a stripper or or dragging a stranger down with us (laughs) as we aimed our half chugs toward a strip club famous for its touch all you want and BYOB business model. I left the man alone and reserved all pity for ourselves. The veteran of the group, a man named Terry, father to Into Bachelor's friend and cell phone game enthusiast Nathan, warmed our group with a loose joint and equally loose conversation. Terry and I had never met. Nathan and I, however, had been much acquainted over the years. He often made the drive from Wichita to Emporia, Kansas to party with us. Generally, our gatherings consisted of Doug, the bachelor, me, and a handful of bored eds we could trick into attending. It takes a special type of partygoer to cross the transom from comparatively sterile outdoors Emporia into an all-but-condemned college house with sticky floors, sti- sticky kitchens, sticky living rooms, sticky bathrooms, sticky bedroom floors, and perpetually flooded basement, home to crawfish and slugs familiar enough to have nicknames and backstories, being not points of embarrassment, but somehow points of pride. If you bonded in our house, you bonded for life, which is why repeat visitors were so welcome. And Nathan, though he kept his face to the always current handheld video game system during much of these parties, was repeat enough to practically be a brother. Now now having met his father, and factoring in what I would later learn of him throughout the night, I can assume Nathan's pilgrimages were more escapist than communal. Terry passed the joint around, asking each of us simple questions, focusing on me as we were the only two members of the entourage not formally acquainted. So Doug tells me you have a son. How old? I just did just a few months, I answered, between coughing fits. I tried to steer the conversation towards its less awkward topics. I hear the outhouse has a fuck room. The father ignored me. <laughs> <laughs> the father ignored me. That titty milk tastes like regular milk, just lots of sugar, Terry said. He offered the information casually, like one would to a stranger on an elevator. This elevator apparently entered out a pediatrician's office, where all the food seminar and the benefits of disgusting eating habits. (laughs) Years later, when Time Magazine would start a culture war by showcasing a four-year-old breastfeeding child on its cover, my first reaction would have been, I've heard of older, much older. The rest of the boys, perhaps calmed either by the smoke or by their long associations with Terry, reacted apathetically. I asked, why would you know that? I had a baby once. The kid didn't stop us from having sex. When you got a mom's titty in your mouth, you end up tasting a bit of it. Nathan, displaying what I assumed to be a callous tolerance to a household father-on-titty conversation, focused on late, a late-level game of Angry Birds. I was beginning to understand his infatuation as one that began young as a, as a familial bomb shelter, but later expanded to a social one as well. Those images I have of him, ignoring drunk girls at 1309 Merchant Street in Emporia, Kansas, in favor of the latest Mario Brothers game, became sad in a completely different way. After a quick pit stop for our B-rations in the B-Y-O-B equation, filling our cooler with enough beer to kill a stripper, we continued the drive, locking our throats and hotboxing the van until com- until we can com- collectively express second thoughts about our ability to maintain composure at the impending promise of lap dances and cold sores. <laughs> we were little qualified to sit in a chair, let alone actually be a tra- chair for stripper asses. But we persisted, each in our own way. Me, I overcompensated for my perceived uncertainty by offering the doorman $10 to cover both myself and the bachelor, falling way short of the required $20 per of toting wiseness. Doug he compensated by lending me the money without calling attention to the gesture. To this day, borrowing $10 from my friend during his own bachelor party to get inside a strip club ranks high on my list of embarrassing moments. The outhouse is unlike any strip club I've experienced. Beyond its sketchy location, 35 miles east of a dead tree in some forgotten wheat field, The outhouse is famous for its aforementioned BYOB policy and touch-all-but-the-boob's etiquette, yet the vagina is mysteriously absent from the no-no list. To keep the sadness theme going, the club has opted to go sans DJ in favor of a sad jukebox attached to a sad rear wall in which the sad strippers put their own sad money for their sad, sad five minutes of stage time. Terry, familiar with the club, helped us navigate the erections to find an accommodating table in a dark corner. I immediately took to the beer, the others took to the strippers. Within minutes, the al- al- alcohol had opened their wallets. I would never been comfortable at a strip club. I would love to claim otherwise, as I already lack the social prerequisites for manliness. I hate sports. I don't like steak. But I simply can't play an adequate pervert. So while the rest of the group bathed in glitter and shame, I drank and drank and drank. Inebriation allows me to remember four specific events. One, me stealing Doug's attention away from his own saddled stripper to show him cell phone pictures of my son. Two, the near-empty cooler with only a few bottles floating among the remnant ice. Three, me attempting to twist off the cap of a bottle only to injure my hand in a way that wouldn't become apparent until twenty minutes later when, after being gifted a lap dance, I noticed the stripper spotted with blood like she'd suffered a a machete injury whacking her way through our erection jungle. Suddenly, my own hand throbbed. I looked down to find my arm, more red than white, with a bottle cap-shaped slice in the meat of my thumb. For the rest of the night, I sat silent, mentally preparing myself for faint shock and awe should the trail of blood be tracked on my chair. Of course, the trail doesn't lead my way. Or worse, the trail doesn't lead my way, and the poor stripper gets fired for a faulty tampon. That's a dialogue I'd love to hear when work history inevitably comes up during future job interviews. Event four, Terry being cockridden while his son looks on without a stripper of his own. Let that image sink for a second, because that's really sad. <laughs> Let me not underestimate the visceral poignancy of this image. They sat adjacent to one another, Terry, just a few gross dry thrusts from explosion, and Nathan, wishing not for a stripper of his own, but for his Nintendo DS. The next morning, we re-grease our emptied stomachs with a dinner breakfast, with a diner breakfast. Mid-meal, Terry steps out for a cigarette. I follow. The logic of the previous night escaped me, so I wasn't going to let the rationale of glitter-dusted father-son bonding go unquestioned. Seated at a wooden bench just outside a window, looking... Into the others, still eating, Terry asks again, How old is your boy? I tell him again, three months. He says, If I could give you one piece of advice, it's this. Do everything you can with him. Go to all of his stupid events, all of his boring games. You won't want to. In fact, you'll think I have every excuse not to do it. But you can't get those times back. You'll be tired and pissed at yourself for for even having him. But do it anyway. I missed a lot with my boy. He glances in through the restaurant window at Nathan, who sits quiet with his nose to a cell phone screen. But I'm making up for it. I wanted to prod him to qualify everything, but I knew already there are concepts of such wouldn't mesh well. We just argued, and certainly I would then feel compelled to approach Nathan, ask him questions about his interests as a father might, his video games give him a hug even, but their relationship is not my relationship. The scar on my hand is since faded, too soft now for a photograph. I take care of every beer bottle, though, taking the few seconds to test the grip's cap before twisting. Despite Terry's advice, I will never experience this essay with my son. He can play all the video games he wants. I just hope he'll play for fun and not to fill a void of my own creation. Thank you.
4: Ladies, keep it going for Caleb J. Ross. He's working hard for you. Caleb will be available for lap dances in the champagne room for the next uh, four and a half minutes. <laughs> and uh, actually, I think uh, I'm supposed to wipe down the pole after, he, it's just good proper etiquette between acts. No? no. Okay. I don't want you to a water all over your keyboard. Uh, check up. out his, his videos. They're really hilarious change. and almost that funny. Uh, they're on a wide range of uh, miscellaneous topics. And uh, next up, we have a surprise guest, for those of you, of a, a bonus performance. Uh, and we have two left, for those of you keeping track. Uh, this is Brian Allen Carr. He lives in Texas. His first book, Short Bus, was a TIL finalist. And his newest novella, Edie, Edie in the Low Hung Hands, just came out on Small Doggy Press out of Portland. Give it up for Brian.
0: Someday, I'm going to make a bunch of fucking money. <laughs> Come back and buy all the posters. <laughs> 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 it's crazy. Man. I've never read from this before, live to people, which might be a good or bad thing. It just came out. It's my favorite book I've done so far, which is weird because it's kind of a, a, a sword fighting book. But you have to know before I start reading, it's about guys with real long arms. Real long arms. They got long arms. Uh, Pickering knows me often as we sat on this bench, pointing to women and asking if I knew them. What about her, he said. He pointed some woman dressed in muted hues, her face slender, and her head held high. I haven't seen her in some time, I told him, but it's doubtful that that is your mother. Tell me about her, said Pickering. I can help to look. Your mother, I told him, was fat and smelly. <laughs> she <laughs> found my arms hideous and I found her girth disgusting, but people told us we'd be perfect for each other because I'd be the only person in town who could hold her, who could wrap my arms around her hug thing <laughs> frame, and it was a joke they'd all say to us carrying along with laughter in their throats and hearts, pointing at us at socials and giving us a hard time. And once, when we were somehow alone in the evening and I was loose with liquor, I clutched her to me. And we laid in a hay bale, thrashed around nude, the smell still hangs about me. I waved the remembered stench from my face, and it was natural I was not joking. <laughs> and that is how you came to be, I said. Me drunk, she fat. My long arms wrapping the expanse of her and crashing her into me with the thoughts of other more suitable women running my imagination. (laughs) It lasted longer than I'd hoped for. She went on first, a quick comer, and I had to think of many things. on account of my drunkenness and my company, and she dried up in the endeavor, which didn't help matters because she became bored with the situation and in the quelling of the lust. Again, sick with disgust at the arms that laid upon her, the same arms you've been cursed with because his son has lost. (laughs) She asked me time and again if I was close, and every time she spoke it seemed to knock me down the mountain, but like Sisyphus, I endured until the task was toward completion, but unlike he I achieved, though at the end I did not feel glorious. I didn't get to the top of the mountain with my rock and feel successful. Instead, shame filled every molecule of my being, and I had to drink more, swallowing much liquor, trying to kill the brain cells to contain the memory of it. But as you can see, I was not capable of the task. Pickering stayed silent a the spell. I think she'll be beautiful, he told me, no matter her size. I laughed. You are under that impression because you live with the misconception that mothers are good people and that their children should love them. My mother died in a helicopter. <laughs> and had I known that a helicopter held her ill fate, I would have made sure she'd taken a ride on one month sooner. I looked pickering over. No, I told him, even if your mother is thin, I can't imagine you find her beautiful. I seriously doubt that the face that would emerge from her thinning <laughs> that could be polished out of that mound of cheeks and smelly mouth, would occur to you as anything more than a smudge of something God couldn't be proud of creating? And most likely seeing it will make you less a person. <laughs> because now, as you sit here, filled with the hope, there are many options available to you. Even after hearing me go on about her, about how she looked, about how she smelled, you could come easily enough to the conclusion that I'm a liar. After all, you already know that I'm not honorable. I'm a bastard's kind of son, I've no hand in raising, and I murdered children yesterday morning, and poor hideous to the eye, and another child two days back who's hideous in his own kind of way, and then I beat that woman, which isn't a good thing. Don't she deserve it. So I couldn't to you if you decided to take my words into your mind and spindle them into nothing and force them from your imagination and in doing so you could go on believing anything that you wanted to. You could believe that your mother's skin was made from honey and that her breath smelled of fresh cut mint and that when she sang, birds cried out in envy. But those options will not be available to you <laughs> when you see your mother. And you'll never be able to console yourself with the maybe. There will only be what is. And the truth won't be good to you. Yeah.
4: <laughs> all right, Brian Allen Carr, that was that was exciting. <laughs> revival up in here. Phil Jordan is our final author. It's a treat to bring him to the stage. He's a personal friend and all around awesome guy. And that's all it says here. You he wrote Not kidding. Um, he's a Portuguese translator, a uh, musician and a writer based out of the UK. He's released several albums with his band Paris and the Hilton's, I've listened to them, they're awesome. Awesome. I've even written about them. (laughs) NEGATIVELY. Yep. (laughs) And he's trying to popularize the fusion of rock and literature, and uh, that hasn't quite happened yet. They're still working on it. Uh, his, His translation work, Fiction and Criticism, has appeared in various publications, including The Warwick Review and Dissident Voice. His latest release is an electronic rock album based on the word work of William Faulkner. I'm pumped about that. Phil Jordan, everybody. Hi. So I'm going to be reading from, uh, this
5: might be the only thing I ever do out of this new book that's coming out this month, What Precision Such Restraint. Uh, I'm really proud of the cover of the book. is hit and messy if, if I may say so. <laughs> um, and uh, it's very much, uh, an experiment for me. Uh, the only review so far comes from uh, Eddie here, who uh, I think <laughs> thinks it's a failure, as do I. Um, but that's OK, actually, because this, this is more of an artifact than a, a, a collection of stories, as far as I see it. Um, my original idea, about a year and a half ago, was to write a, a collection of stories that would uh, take certain, um, certain things we take for granted on the internet and, and sort of reverse them. My original idea, to be specific, was uh, to take really generic pornographic movie titles and make them tragic. Uh, as an example, um, Busty Hot Blonde gets well and truly fucked by the system as she tries to buy drugs um, for her fuck, or horny college roommates try to seduce the plumber and ruin his uh, family life in the process. And, um, actually, that didn't work out because that was basically the punchline and that, I couldn't think of anything more to do with it. But I, but I did end up uh, trying to create stories that would subvert some kind of expectation. Uh, this is the result. Um, a lot of shaggy dog stories. They don't lead anywhere. You'll start thinking, this is really cool. And as Eddie points out, that's probably the best thing about it. It doesn't really lead to anything more than that along the way. The story I'm going to read is possibly the the most obvious exception to that rule. It's called "Behold the Antique Show" or "Vomit as a Talent." Um, I, it's not my usual style, but it is very short. And I think that'll that'll work. Try to pretend I'm a try to pretend I'm, a, oh to pretend I'm a, a young lady as I read this uh, with yeah. my voice. <laughs> our lady, our Done. I have been struggling with bulimia for years. At first, I I only vomited the fattening things to which I like to treat myself. Eventually, I formed a habit of running to the bathroom after every meal, and having made sure to drink plenty of water, I puked out everything I had eaten. In the end, however, they had to stop me from doing all this, because I discovered in myself the ability to puke out things I had not consumed. (laughs) Things not of my world. The first object to come out of me was a pocket watch. It was one of those old-fashioned things with a golden chain. I remember the incident very vividly because it was the first. After that, my memory's a little fuzzy, and I can't recall whether, for instance, the monocle came before or after the snuff box. <laughs> what is for certain is that I was in a restaurant in Spain with my fiance when I vomited the pocket watch. We just finished a selection of tacos. After my final bite of honey-fried chorizo, um, feeling repugnantly full and needing to empty my stomach for, you know, at once. I, after two years of regular bulimic practices, you cannot stand the sensation of a full stomach. Uh, I excuse myself, and I walk to the women's room, which thankfully consisted of a single toilet, so that I could lock the door and not be disturbed. I tie my hair back, I crouch over the toilet, and I place two fingers into my mouth after the generous tickle for by now I was very sensitive to stimulation in that area, I began to barf out the contents of my meal. All of this was normal, but soon I felt a strange need to retch far more intensely than I was used to. I retched and retched, feeling my stomach heaving upwards, my esophagus strained to disembod whatever was lodged in there. And soon enough, with tears rolling out of my squinty eyes, I realized that I needed to reach inside my throat and pull out the thing between my fingertips was some kind of hard, wiry thing. I did not stop to think about it. I merely pulled and pulled until, with a final gurgle, I managed to remove from my mouth that little golden pocket watch, covered in undigested chorizo bits and weirdly cold to the touch. The chain, which I had been pulling, was about four inches long and ended in a little buckle. The watch itself did not work, but it was beautiful. The arms were covered in gems. The back surface was smooth and the glass, flawless. I was so absorbed in my contemplation of this thing that it barely registered how incredible all of it was. Later when I had carefully washed my new possession and placed it in my handbag and sat back down to the table where my fiance gave me a curious look, I realized I had just vomited a pocket watch and I suddenly felt very unwell. <laughs> <laughs> that watch I ended up offering to my fiance on our wedding night. I was in good shape, though not, I will admit, very healthy. And it was thanks to my bulimia, a condition which I acknowledged even then as dangerous and unnecessary, but also a condition which, to be entirely honest, was far more convenient than diet and exercise. I still, I, was, I wasn't I was sure if it was worth carrying on with it. If I was going to start bringing up man-made artifacts, I decided that it was, however. Um, hey, it's Monica Drake. This is the yeah. best thing. This is the best thing. Hi. It's
3: Monica. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I apologize.
2: No, this is even
5: better. Um, was it worth carrying on if I was puking up man-made artifacts? I decided that it was, and moreover that doing it was an easy way to make money. I could simply barf out something precious, clean it, and pawn it somewhere for extra cash. But the pocket watch, as I say, was a present for my fiance. He was delighted, though a bit more suspicious than I had hoped. Where did the watch come from? He did not insist when I told him. I had acquired it from my grandparents' estate. But I could tell he remained skeptical. It didn't matter. The following morning, we woke up as husband and wife, and we spent the day doing husband and wife things. No mention was made of the pocket watch, which, <clears throat> I admit, caused me to consider my husband an ingrate. After the watch, it took two weeks for the leather wallet to come out. By that time, we'd left Spain. It was an easy one to pick up, uh, to p- puke up, because it was slippery. The date on said 1880. An old present. I cleaned it up, I put it in the drawer, and I decided to wait for the next item to arrive. It happened five days later, and this time, it was a fine mustache cone. A tiny little thing with some kind of stone-embossed body a beautiful toy, into the drawer it went. And so there followed a semi-regular stream of such rare and antiquated items. This went on for months. A wedding ring, an emerald necklace, many beautiful things beside From From time to time, I swallowed um, something that would come right back out. I collected all these treasures and drove to the nearest pawn shop. I was able to make a substantial amount of money. That money I used to access Expensive hair salons, tickets to the ballet, and various other luxuries that I would otherwise not be able to afford. The problems began when I started to lose weight far more significantly than before. At first, it was only a pound or two, which pleased my husband and me as well. But little by little, the pounds disappeared. Until by the sixth month, I was consistently drowsy, irritable, weak. My husband was no longer impressed. He made me eat more. It would not let me leave the table until I was full. <laughs> but of course, I simply vomited it out as I did as usual. The result was an increase in the production of mysterious items in my stomach. Uh, one day, I was puking out brooch after brooch until I began to bleed a little from my throat. Then I had to subsist on liquids for a while. I made a lot of money. I lost a lot of weight. My worry? But my husband worried. And he tried to take me to the doctor. I refused. I had amassed a treasure trove of jewels, combs, and another three pocket watches, even a ridiculous doorknob made entirely of silver. I was not prepared to give this power up. Who would be? So I didn't go to the doctor. My husband, desperate to see me gain some weight, contacted my family. There was an intervention. All of that is irrelevant, except for one detail. The night of that family intervention, which was all tears and pleading to no avail, I vomited a new type of item, a large, clumsy-looking, rusty key. A key. Now, that was worthless. But it it implied a lock. My curiosity was aroused. From that night forth, I only vomited keys. Useless, variously-shaped keys. They didn't open any doors. They only took up space, so I threw them away. I was spuking out key after key after key, and all of them for nothing. The frustration was immense. Where did my talent gone? Why was I being punished for my greed? Was I eating the wrong things? While I was lost amid these thoughts, I don't quite know where I was or how long this went on for, my husband called an ambulance, and they took me to a clinic full of specialists. I'm not sure what they were specialists in, but I suppose it was to do with eating disorders. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I resisted all the way there, of course, to no avail. Soon, I was alone among dozens of other patients. Inmates. They fed me vegetables, fish, grilled chicken, and would not let me out of their sight so that I was incapable of engaging in my disorder. One night, however, or I suppose it was early morning, I was in my room unsupervised, unable to sleep, and so I decided simply to try vomiting for the sake of vomiting. I had not eaten anything in eight or nine hours. There was nothing to vomit, but I missed the sensation, odd as it might sound. So I sneaked into my bathroom, I was in an ensuite room, it was a fancy clinic, and I inserted my fingers, in fact, almost my entire fist into my throat, and after some effort, I was able to barf up another key. This one was smaller, lighter, shinier. I washed it, and I put it under my pillow, and I tried to sleep again. But I could not sleep. An idea was forming in my head, why not try this key on the lock on my door? And so I tiptoed to the door, and I placed the key in the lock. I turned the key very, very slowly. There was a creaking sound, then another. And soon I was able to turn the handle and open the door. I locked the door again, and I went to bed for the third time. Now I slept well. As soon as I think I have a reasonable chance of escaping, I will use this key to leave this clinic. I have a feeling that if I keep at it, soon the pocket watches and the necklaces will return. I want to build a full collection and sell these items as a business. I weigh 49 pounds.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) All right. Bill Jordan, the vomitous and concise, (laughs) Bill Jordan. Uh, We want to um, thank all the authors who contributed, everyone, for coming here this evening. Let's have one more round of (laughs) for We want to thank the International Poster Gallery for letting us come in and sell their stage and uh, all the big-time future here. Uh, we've got uh, Lazy Fascist Press, Cameron Pierce, Phil, and Perfect Edge Books. And my name's Gordon. We are from Manarchy Magazine. That's ManarchyMag.com. All kinds of cool articles and stuff about all kinds of interesting things you guys would love. Yeah, not very concise. Uh, like us on Facebook, all that kind of good jazz. Um, any other housekeeping stuff? I don't forget anything. All right, that's cool. Thanks for everybody uh, serving up and listening. What's, huh? oh. uh, books are for sale right now. There are some books on the table up here up front for sale. Check those out. Uh, mingle with the authors. Uh, you know, Pump up their egos. Shake their hands. We like that sort of thing. Buy our books. Follow us on Twitter, yada, yada, yada. Look for, in the coming weeks, uh, these episodes to be played on uh, BookedPodcast.com. And to those who joined us on the live streaming audience, thank you so much. Hopefully, you uh, uh, it was fun and entertaining for you
3: guys. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, so you just heard Caleb J. Ross, Brian Allen Carr, and Phil Jordan. With, with, would you like to tell people who the
1: special guest was in the middle of uh, Phil Jordan's reading in case you didn't catch that? <laughs> this is a very unexpected uh, inter, like, I don't want to say interruption because that sounds rude, but, uh, um uh, appearance by someone who was very very important so important in fact that she felt it necessary to uh, announce herself in the middle of someone's story. Monica Drake joined our reading in Boston and uh, was nice enough to barge in and the final of seven authors and announce herself uh, in the middle of them reading a story.
3: Yes, Monica Drake, whose book, The Stud Book, if you remember a few episodes ago I mentioned, uh, bought an advanced reader copy on eBay, and we'll be uh, we'll be reviewing that. You know, Rob, what I was thinking is if this would have happened, say, oh, I don't know, six months ago, she technically would have been eligible to be in the Booked Anthology.
1: Technically, yes. However, <laughs> um, <laughs> we do have high standards for the types of stories that make it into our anthology, so i don't know i've never read any monica drake I was just but. gonna say that's yeah I,
3: I know i'm not much of a fan of of um, clown girl but you know uh, Anyway, i guess we should get back to our actual um readers the actual <laughs> guests. so um uh caleb j ross reading a nonfiction story uh there which was kind of interesting because i guess that means like, we didn't ask him but that did mean he went to a strip club and some of one of his friends brought his kid right um,
1: that's what I got out of it. All right.
3: <laughs> we had that surprise guest in the middle, Brian Allen Carr. who, uh, no offense to any of the other readers, but, man, with that performance, I think that's all anybody was talking about after the reading.
1: Yeah, he made his mark. He was unexpected. He was not on the bill for the evening and was thrown in very last minute. Um, I actually saw uh, Cameron Pierce hand a note to Gordon more than halfway through uh, with the basic information for Brian Allen Carr. So it was a very, very last-minute thing, but uh, it worked out well. I think everybody really enjoyed it.
3: Mm-hmm. I, uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on that guy. I may have to add short Bus to my non-booked reading list.
1: Yeah. And then uh, Phil Jordan with uh, his story, uh, oh, what's it called? It's from What Precision Such Restraint, and um, it's got such a good title. Hang on, I'm going to it right now. You can hear me opening my book. Something
3: uh, or Vomit as an Art Form
1: beyond i'm sorry behold the antique show vomit as a talent ah talent, damn it you were so close
3: but uh definitely an interesting (laughs) story and a great way to end off the reading
1: yeah all
3: right and then uh, we promised you bonus content it's not just us uh yapping at you about what we thought of uh monica drake or or brian allen carr but we have two interviews to do here so uh the first one caleb j ross no stranger to booked listeners he's been uh been with us, I think, three times previously, and uh, we talked to him a little bit about his reading in Boston.
1: Yep. Then uh, right after Caleb, we're just going to jump directly into conversation we had with Phil Jordan, the founder... And the head guy over at Perfect Edge Book, he's all books. Did I say book?
3: You did. <laughs> he's also, they were. You went, you it's, like a year ago, they were Perfect Edge Book, but then they put a second then
1: they, one out. Then they're books, so they had yeah. to go and change their whole yeah. file for a new company name and everything. It's a lot of work. Uh, Phil, Phil was nice enough to join us for a little while, uh, work us into his very busy schedule. Like I said when we were talking to him, uh, he was in uh, Boston for AWP, and it seemed like we saw just a blur of Phil as he ran into the room and ran back out because he was pretty much just constantly in meetings and stuff. I will forever
3: associate the sound of a door slamming with Phil Jordan. Like the other way around, like every time I think Phil Jordan, I hear
1: a door closing
3: somewhere. So.
1: It sounds so final and negative.
3: Well, I don't. No, no, I don't mean it that way. But that's what it was. You're right. He's like, "Hey, everybody, let's go down. All right, I got a meeting. Got to go." Like, so you'll hear a little bit about why he's such a busy man here in this uh, in this interview. But first, we bring you Caleb J. Ross. Caleb, welcome back to Booked. It's, uh, it's been a few months now.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it has been. Uh, I, I'm glad to be back.
1: That restraining order. I, I didn't know restraining orders had, like, expiration dates. Apparently, they do. <laughs> uh. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Companies do it. It's it's a very weird system, bureaucracy and all, but it works out because it gets me closer to you.
1: uh, uh <laughs> All right. To get kicked off, uh, Perfect Edge re-released Stranger Will, which was... Uh, one of the reviews that we did early on, I think it was episode nine um, at Booked Here. Uh, do you want to tell us what it feels like now that it's redebuted? Um and you've had some time with the book, uh, like it's settled for a while and now it's coming back out?
2: Yeah, it's actually uh, a, a more interesting than I really thought it would be. I figured it would be basically nothing but a Band-Aid between the release of one and the release of other, and it's just sort of a patch from from one to the other, but... Really, it, it's it's pretty interesting in that most of the people I knew personally and was able to sell it to directly myself that first go around have already experienced it, have already read it. So the second go around is really, uh, there's nothing left for me to hand sell, so to speak. So I'm really able to, or really actually be forced to, not by the publisher, but by myself, uh, to uh, go out there and, and get it in the hands of people who might not. Have heard of me otherwise, uh, so I've been doing a lot, probably more, or I, I should say a different type of promotion in this, uh, in this this go around, and uh, being able to, you know, work with Phil Jordan uh, directly. I consider him a friend, so it was really easy and nice to be able to work with him and creating additional content for this release, which is obviously uh something i really felt really important i didn't i didn't want people to feel gypped if they if i didn't want people if one feel compelled to buy a second copy if they're my friend even though they had a first copy because that would just be dumb but for those people who did feel compelled i wanted to make sure that they got something a little extra so there was that additional content in there so it's been a lot of talking about that additional content as part of this new uh this new uh round of of marketing i guess
3: so our listeners, uh, heard you as part of your reading, um, some of that additional content, uh, do you want to kind of expose what else might be in there?
2: Yeah, actually. Um, and let me reach back here and just see, because honestly I can't remember all everything that's in there. Some of it's been, uh, been previously published online. Uh, so there's actually an exploration by Pablo de for that he wrote for uh, Sunday observer, which is a Sri Lankan online news newspaper, or I guess news screen, something website. And, uh, he, he did an exploration about that and, and typical Pablo de Star fashion. So it's very sort of in your head and, and, and very uh, intellectual, but without feeling boring or anything like that. So I was really honored to, to be able to allow that to get published in here. Um, there's an interview that Nick Corpon did with me um, for No Journal uh, back in 2011, um, which I don't know if that's still online. So this might be the only place to actually get it, to be honest. Um, I did a uh, an essay for uh, Stranger Will I- at the Nervous Breakdown back in 2011 as well. That sort of that was called in defense of Stranger Will, so it was my way of trying to defend it, uh, considering its content. That wasn't an easy thing to do, and so uh, and then also the piece I read, which is a short uh, a nonfiction piece about um, my experience at a strip bar, uh, bleeding on a stripper basically is, is the climax of that, uh, experience. Most climaxes with strippers don't end in blood from, from what I've heard.
3: <laughs> Not <laughs> for you.
2: <laughs> Not for me. I never, I, I was going to say something gross. I won't though. So anyway, that's about it. Uh, but yeah, good stuff though. Uh, and also the, the story itself is, it's, Pretty much the same, um, with uh, it, it, with the exception of some edits and some some better you know editing and things like that. So, um, yeah. Very cool. Hey,
1: so uh, like we said before, Perfect Edges, who's releasing this is a re-releasing, I guess. Um, still young imprint. So, how would you say uh, your experience
2: with them is versus your experience with other publishers you've worked with? Um, it's been amazing to be honest with you. And I, and I obviously am still under contract with some of those previous publishers, so I can't badmouth anybody, but, um, <laughs> I've, only with, uh, I've only worked with really small presses in the past micro presses. Some people would call them, I mean, just basically they put out a couple books a year. There's no marketing really incentive behind it. It's a, uh, it's, it's really sort of a, a labor of love, both on the writer and the publisher side. Um, and this is, I would think of uh, perhaps a bit of a step up from that, even though it's still very much a labor of love, a labor, labor of love. And uh, it's not, you know, it, no one's getting rich off of this or anything, but it's a little step up in the sense that I, it's part of a larger machine. And, and in this case, I think that larger machine is actually a good thing. Not to mention I'm, I'm working directly with Phil Jordan, who is just uh, one of the most passionate people I've ever met when it comes to publishing books, writing books, talking about books. He's a true intellectual without being a d-bag, uh, which is rare to find, I think. And <laughs> and so he ma- he makes it all just worthwhile. It's really it's him that it makes the publishing experience so great. In this case, uh, if it was anybody else heading it up, I I wouldn't. I I don't think I would have tried it. Very
3: cool. Um, our listeners also heard a little bit about your uh, your YouTube channel, which has been a focus for you um, recently for the last you know, six seven months at least. Do you find the fans of either your writing or your channel have a hard time kind of reconciling your persona because it's very different for people to see you on YouTube and then read the like very serious content that you write? Do you find that that's a hard crossover for folks?
2: I think it is. Uh, you know, my my first introduction to public was with was with like Stranger Will, so most people had had thought of me probably as this sort of depressing person. Um, so I think for the most part, the crossover was difficult for people who who might have only read Stranger Will and then come to the YouTube channel and realized that's not at all what I am. Uh, I, I do. I feel, though, the people who found me first through the YouTube channel and then read Stranger Will, um, they, they were able to be braced, braced. Uh, I was able to, you know, sort of uh, put the caveat on there that if you read this book, know that it's completely different. I actually did a giveaway of the book. I found that the whole YouTube community, and there's a sub-community called BookTubers, which are people who make videos about books. And uh, I, I feel that there's they're very they're extremely passionate about books. And um, so I, I had a, a giveaway where I just gave away basically a copy to anyone who wanted one in exchange for a video review. Uh, it didn't have to be a positive review, negative review, it could be anything. And they were a lot of them were a little bit shocked when they did read it because a lot of those readers, and I don't know if this is a, if this is Due to me and my personality, but a lot of those readers on that community read young adult fiction, and so this was definitely not young adult fiction. <laughs> it was definitely a bit of a shock to them. So watching some of the- <laughs> are actually quite quite funny and entertaining, but there's actually a friendship level too. So I-, I feel as though they kind of got to know me personally through the YouTube channel. They saw that I was kind of a a, a bit of a a bit of a hopefully funny guy. Uh, so it made it probably a little easier to digest the book, I think.
1: Um, at the risk of being overly self-congratulatory, I'd have to say that um, maybe one of the a good crossover example of of seeing you in both elements would be live readings because uh, you see that kind of funnier, quirkier side of your personality, but at the same time, like uh, you get to see the stories that you write, which are typically more serious. So um, I think that might be something you should basically push to everybody that's on your YouTube channel. Our reading, it's a, our reading episodes.
2: I <laughs> a really smart idea, actually. I and I, I've always been really aware of that too. I think in a reading environment, and, and the and the the readings that that you guys uh, recorded uh, for the Manarchy reading in Boston, the, I, it's 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 a good thing to see because y- you are a good thing to hear, I guess. Because uh, one it, readings, I think, are always better when they're short and funny um so and that you had some mix you had definitely people who brought short and funny works or a very energetic and, and entertaining reading like you got from brian allen carr so um that's the live reading uh, you couldn't stand up there and read uh, i don't think you can stand up there and read most sections from stranger will verbatim and have it be a good reading it would be boring and people would be tired or no if the content's good or not and so i've always tried to i've always been really conscious of that and i've actually uh, used to for a couple of readings i actually rewrote the entire first act, first chapter of stranger will as something funny instead of as depressing as it is and so i read both of those i would say i'm going to read a, a depre- the, the depressing opening chapter and then i'm going to read a completely rewritten version of that that's uh, that's funny and that story is about a man who marries a horse um because he's kind of mentally retarded it, it was so it's very it's a very <laughs> sure. But, uh, but yeah, I've always been very conscious of that, so I, I hope that comes through. Comes through in most of the readings.
3: All right, what's on the horizon for Caleb J. Ross?
2: Uh, Phil would like for me to write more novels, um, so I think I'm going to have to do that. Um, <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> I've I've I found myself enjoying the video making these videos for this YouTube channel. I, I found myself enjoying really two YouTube channels. I have two. I have one at uh, YouTube slash, YouTube.com slash Caleb J. Ross, and then also a second daily one at YouTube.com slash Caleb J. Ross blog, V-L-O-G. And so I find myself actually having a lot of fun, and there's this sense of instant gratification with those, and that just sort of gets right at all my the pleasure centers on my brain, whereas a, a book, as much as I love writing, it takes so much longer, um, and I'm kind of lazy sometimes. So I, I've actually... In terms of Horizon, it's more videos. I'm actually doing a, a 22-part video series. I'm in the middle of it. Uh, there was a for writers out there. There was a, a Pixar released a or someone who worked for Pixar released a series of 22 storytelling uh, rules, basically, and all shortened. I think I think they were sh- uh, released on Twitter or something like this. This was this was a couple years ago. And so I decided I'm going to make a video for every single one of those 22 rules and just kind of make those rules engaging and funny and that kind of stuff. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now, but definitely a couple other novels in the hopper. But they're probably not going to get finished as quickly as as Phil Jordan would like, I don't think,
1: unfortunately. He seems like a pushy guy, that Phil Jordan.
2: I know. D, right?
1: (laughs) He's like the nicest guy in the world, as everybody uh, will have seen by now or listened or heard, at least, I guess on the episode yeah that's what i'm talking about
3: <laughs> caleb thanks for taking time out of your uh your very busy youtubing schedule to treat uh, the people <laughs> who who appreciate the audio um to uh to a little bit
1: of uh, insight into your work
2: for you guys anything
1: hey phil uh thanks so much for coming on and uh talking to us i feel like we should have done this like probably a year ago at least
3: <laughs> yeah oh we, we're getting it done now so i'm happy all right, let's start with a, a little... Uh, here's a real easy question. What inspired you to start Perfect Edge Books? Um, I think well, for,
5: for a few years, I've been thinking about uh, doing something uh, in publishing. Uh, my, my family has a history of publishing uh, in Portugal. My great-grandfather uh, was one of the first uh, people to publish what uh, I suppose is Portugal's most famous poet, Fernando Um This is early last century. And then my grandfather uh, sold that company uh, several decades ago. But I think it's always been in my family to to want to do that. My father's a literary uh, uh, man himself. And I think I've, I've always had that in me to want to publish people that, you know, who weren't me, people I had faith in, maybe other publishers hadn't given a chance. And I think I had the means to do it when I finally started Perfect Edge. And so I... I went with it. I think I would have done it eventually if I hadn't done it now anyway. And maybe this is a good way to get the nightmare over with now and never do it again (laughs) if it goes wrong.
1: Um, Looking at the back of uh, your what precision such restraint, there's a little uh, there's a page that talks about kind of the the goal or the or the aim of. of, Yeah. uh, And and it seems like it's I mean, to boil it down and be indelicate, it's basically saying, you know, uh, you want to just be smarter not necessarily avoiding topics but like bringing more quality to to what you're doing
5: yeah i find uh i find i mean that that last page isn't going to be in every book we publishes sort of, you know the first few ones at least just so we can we can make sure people understand what we're about and i think what we're about is um not not being deliberately idiotic uh just because transgressive automatically means uh uh marketable cool uh, and interesting i think a lot of the issues I've had over the years with people in my networks who were writing uh, transgressive fiction or fiction that in any way is edgy, is that they think that edgy sells fiction um, uh, automatically. It doesn't. And a lot of the people I've read over the years who are writing with me or sort of getting published along with me now have learned that as well. You can't just be edgy. You can't just be offensive. You can't just be transgressive. It happens that a lot of the writing networks I was involved with, and still am, um, found the idea of uh, publication um, especially appealing if they could be saying something that was provocative um, or in some way groundbreaking. And I, I, I don't think the association that they make between uh, being literary or important or interesting Um, and being shocking uh, is is a fair association. I don't think it's a sort of a real thing. It can be. But when I founded Perfect Edge Books, I knew that a lot of people in my networks were going to be uh, interested. If it took off, they would be approaching me uh, because, you know, I'm I'm a friend or whatever. Um, And I wanted to make clear from the start, I'm not looking for that kind of attitude. I don't want people... To just write a book about aliens raping horses uh i don't think that's the kind of thing that i will ever want to read uh or unless it's interesting <laughs> uh, and most of, the, m- 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 most of the time it isn't it just isn't um and so i, I kind of put that page back there so I, from the start i announced uh that i wouldn't be looking for shock just for shock's sake uh um, as a sort of defense uh, mechanism, I don't. I know that most of the people I associate with will know people like this, and you know, word spreads. And I want to sort of cut people off at that point immediately, which means that we I get submissions I'm actually interested in. You know, people um, who are writing about things that interest them a, a great deal, instead of just things that uh, that they think will interest people. I think that's my best answer for that. It's
1: preemptive. <laughs> That's, I, yeah, I thought it was really good and, and, and yeah. to the point. Um, now, this kind of ties in. What do you see as being the big challenges you face as being the head of an imprint? Um, yeah. In Boston, it seemed like we saw you little blurs of you and like you were really busy. Um, yeah. So that's my impression of what the challenges are. But what, what, what's the biggest thing that, take, that you would have to take on?
5: Um, well, there's two things. Well, Perfect Edge itself is actually pretty, pretty easy. Uh, I like working with people. Uh, the people i've taken on have been very pleasant uh, and some of them are incredibly uh, ambitious and i think if i can provide them with some kind of me you know medium w- what they're doing perfect um, the challenges are actually on the the zero book side i i help run another imprint um, a much more successful and uh <laughs> and uh, i guess uh dangerous one because i i think a lot of my my time gets sucked into um, solving problems over there we've got a lot more authors it's been going on a lot longer I didn't found it I don't think I'll see the, um, the end of it if I just uh, keep doing what I'm doing so I'm, I'm trying to find ways of making that palatable because these authors are often in the media they're often uh, scrutinized by other authors whom they hate it's very sort of bitchy and catfighty. Um, and I don't, I don't get involved in that I'm not the public face of zero at all but when you've got major uh, newspapers in the UK writing articles about you uh, as in like a, as, as a press, uh, you, you, it becomes very intimidating. you You don't want to stand out too much. You want to be in the shadows and fix things. But you've got all this pressure and public scrutiny. Um, that's where a lot of my time goes when I'm doing any kind of publishing thing. it's It's dealing with authors who have misunderstood something, or on our side, there's been a misunderstanding or whatever. Uh, and I don't want it to escalate and people get, uh, you know, oh, where's my, what's going on with my book? Where, 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 no one's talking to me about this this problem being fixed or whatever. That's what I tend to do over there. Um, a lot of my time in publishing goes there, even though ostensibly I should be running Perfect Edge books. Um, the authors on Perfect Edge are actually really pleasant. I really like them. Um, there's not many problems. Uh, I do find... It's difficult sometimes to uh, convey to people, not so much on Perfect Edge, but even there as well, that a lot of the people who are running or helping to run or designing their books, whatever, this is this is a lot, this is freelance. I'm not doing it myself. I can't design a book. I can't design a book cover. And sometimes you want, you you meet people who want to tweak things or to completely change what's what's happened to their cover, or whatever because it doesn't fit their aesthetic and actually that's every tweak is expensive uh and it's something we, we I'd love to give you a perfect cover or a perfect uh, design or whatever but actually it part of the responsibility comes down to authors uh making clear what they want from the start and not just saying oh, actually I I see we did there I don't like it please change it uh, that's a bit of a time suck it's fine people have their preferences and you, you have to take them into account if you don't want to piss off your authors but you, you, it, it helps a lot. Um, and it, it saves a lot of time when people are up front about what they want from the start. Um, I'd say that that's probably one of the biggest challenges just cause it's daily. It's all the time. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You brought up some, <clears throat> some interesting thoughts. And uh, when you were talking about scrutiny and of, of publishers and, yeah. Over the last two years, we've been dealing with a lot of small presses, and been before we did this podcast, I couldn't have cared about what went on behind the scenes. I just wanted to read a good book, but we've noticed, yeah. you know, some of the shenanigans that publishers have been called out on, now, being under a lot of scrutiny. You know, what are your thoughts on some of the things that are going on, and and how do you make sure you don't fall into similar traps?
5: Well, one thing that I think uh, helps me a lot is that I, I write a. I've started writing uh, a monthly column on Lit Reactor about. Um, Publishing as from sort of from a disgruntled publisher's perspective. Now I, I haven't been long enough uh, doing this long enough to be truly disgruntled, but um, you do, you know you, you do sort of see patterns, uh, things that just keep coming up, and sometimes a human part of you w- loses to the animal part of you, and you just say fuck off, stop doing this. You know, at that point you you got to be very careful. You get authors who are absolutely batshit insane. Not on the perfect edge, but I have dealt with authors who are absolutely insane, um, and who start threatening you, or whatever. Or they'll say, "Well, this this is this hasn't gone according to my expectations for whatever reason." And I'm everybody who's ever known you. You know, at that point, you got to think: Have I really fucked up? Is this really a problem with my press, or not? If it is, then you, you do kind of have to fix it. For instance, if if you if you failed to do something that you you can see why they'd be upset about that. You know, for instance, uh, um, uh, one example from my, from my recent experience is I I've failed to email somebody about something which I had said I would uh, and they went on, and, and they didn't hear it from me for about a week and I just didn't know I'd done anything wrong and they contacted me about it and actually it was fine, that was fine. But a whole week when they're actually waiting for a decision that's just too polite to you know, prompt you or whatever, um, it can feel like a bit of a, a screw up that's not a big deal but it does become a big deal if you as a publisher then say well you uh you have responsibility to and the success of this book depends on you being you know my savior at, a, at every point or the recent examples with people who uh edit uh, other people's work um like it was name, uh jan, jan gregorio someone oh recently, yeah, yeah totally, you know what i'm talking yeah. about Yeah. You know? yep. um they 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 screw up, and they simply refuse to accept that they screwed up. That builds up a lot of ill will, a lot of resentment. Um, and then, yeah, you're going to be publicly hated, whereas if you apologize or if you didn't do anything wrong but you explain to the author why you didn't do anything wrong, you, it, you actually were behaving pretty professionally, or you failed to be professional, or whatever, all these things can be solved um, if you're delicate about it, if you are not delicate about it. Then, yeah, you, you will get authors who are angry. You will get people publicly um, criticizing what you do. Um, I think a lot of what's happened with Perfect Edge has been very positive. I've had authors who, like my friend Andres Bergen, um, uh, whose book 100 Years of Vicissitude did very well back in January, um, was initially disappointed by the marketing efforts. And we, we, you know, we try our best, you know, but he just. He, he was disappointed. The book wasn't selling enough back then, you know. Uh, and he, he brought this up with me, and it struck a chord because I know that one of the weaknesses that any small press will face is getting books reviewed. Well, what am I supposed to do? I I, I talked to him about it. I got his. I asked him for his feedback, uh, and I've I try to make changes. And you anyway, know, it, it has paid off. Um, but you you have to be able to know that authors, each of the people you're dealing with, is an, is a person living every moment as that person you're not just dealing with with you know an occasional complaint you're dealing with people who are thinking about what you're doing who are wondering what's going on with their design for their book uh and they don't care about you know 10 other people you know they, they care about their book and so that's a lot of pressure and you, you have to keep it in mind and be, be, be delicate i guess if you're delicate and sensitive i think that eliminates a great deal of the problems even if you screw up if you don't then you're an asshole and you, you should be criticized um, <laughs>
1: So you're essentially in a relationship with every author.
5: <laughs> well, Yeah, essentially. And uh, it, uh, it, it's exhausting. you know, I, I, I certainly don't have that with zero. I don't know most of the authors at all at zero, um, With perfect edge. I try to keep the the numbers low. Um, and I, I try to, I, I like to talk to people uh, and find out what's going on. I back in December, I wrote an email to uh most of my authors if i know whoever was on the list and i said listen we've been most of us have been working together for about a year or a little longer whatever uh give me some feedback give me some honest feedback you know uh and some of them did others went silent which i will take as a good sign i guess uh mm-hmm. um but those who did they told me oh, i i i like this i don't like that uh and yeah, it can feel like a relationship, but it's worth it uh, most of the time. Some sometimes you think, "Oh God, this book isn't even gonna sell," but I'm trying. You know, other times, you know, you just
1: you want to do a good job. So, um, so what's the future for Perfect Edge look like for you?
5: Um, I'm hoping that uh, enough authors on the on uh, well, on my list get established. Uh, or help I, I, as long as i can help them get established in some sense i think i'm doing a an okay job um i don't think perfect edge is ever going to be the kind of uh super ambitious um press that you will find uh, if you search for a couple minutes i don't want to change this, the world of literature at all i think that's not what i'm here to do in my in, in my publishing life i would just like to give a few authors enough time that they can uh develop their writing uh find an audience if they find a bigger press even better you know they deserve it you know as long as i can be part of that then that's very fulfilling and i don't see that changing uh i think that's still the goal
3: what are we going to see coming up soon from the imprint
5: a couple of uh titles i'm very excited about that are nearing completion one of them is um uh a collection of experimental fiction um that uh that really sort of plays around with um the idea not only a form but actually of, of what 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 you can do by taking pretty boring objects you find in the real world and uh making them sort of physically impossible logically impossible in this case a, a catalog uh, a, a sort of a, a press has gone Bust, and these are the titles you can still order. Here's the catalog of things you can still order before you know it just disappears completely. And all these books contradict each other. You know, all the stories that, all the sort of descriptions in that catalog go a bit meta, a bit weird. Uh, It's called the Purgatory Press. I'm really excited about that. About that, it's John John Culbert, and we've got uh, uh, Spiral uh, Spiral Bound Brother by uh, Ryan uh, Wilson. He's a much more accessible writer in that sense, and I'm I'm looking forward to that because that's probably going to be the the next big release for us um uh, and we've got we've got titles by people i'm not allowed to announce yet but they'll be exciting and of course (laughs) two more andres bergen novels uh well one more novel and one more collection so i'm I'm excited about that as well um yeah that's that's all i can say for now those will be be at least seven in the work
1: very nice Mm -hmm. um switching gears a little bit uh paris and the hiltons is something that you work on too um, yeah. I, where did where, you come up with the uh, the name for the band?
5: Uh, it was 2007, and it, I found it on a uh, um, an online discussion of stupid band names that hadn't been used. Someone <laughs> someone said Paris Newton's and I just took it. Um, and back then, it was very much a joke band, so I didn't care. Uh, and now it's kind of stuck. Now that I've tried to be more serious with it, um, uh, I can't really change that base or enough of fan base that it would be annoying to change it um, so i have I've, I've 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 taken a saying well that name is ironic and you're just gonna have to get you know uh, <laughs> deal with it or listen to something you know, listen to something more intelligently titled like you know um,
3: the rolling stones i don't know <laughs> <laughs> you know we've heard quite a bit from Paris and the Holdens going all the way back to got one of our first interviews with Caleb Ross and I'm very uh, sorry <laughs> <laughs> it's um how would you describe the sound to someone that's never heard the band because it's very it varying very varying Shit. in in type of music it changes very dramatically
5: um, for a lo- for the longest while now I think we've we've been saying it's uh it's some kind of literary music because I tend to mix uh literary influences with uh, the music for about a year and a half at least i've been just trying to be a bit sort of quieter about what kind of music it is because i don't know we went from sort of dumb rock to uh industrial sound for a while industrial rock i guess and then then we went fucking crazy with uh, uh an album with 23 tracks and at least 11 or 12 genres just in that album <laughs> um very incompatible genres classical music you know uh, then um, jazz and spoken word then rock then uh drum and bass I mean the whole thing is is a mess in that sense um so if you want to sort of like succinct definition of what Paris Nilton's is like guy who sounds like Tom Waits but doesn't really listen to Tom Waits does different voices you know that th- that's it um i can tell you the, the the new album that we're working on now uh with a full band uh, instead of just me and uh my friend sam um is much more straightforward uh accessible rock um so maybe that'll be the the final thing it won't be but
1: maybe <laughs> well um thanks for giving us by the way infidelity to to intro and outro the uh, episode of this so Anybody, anybody who's listening, um, this is a Paris and Hilton song's infidelity that you're going to be hearing on the front and back of this episode.
5: It's It's been unused so far, so you're welcome to have it.
1: Boom. A premiere. An exclusive. Basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so what are you working on uh, personally right now?
5: In, in terms of literature, you mean? Or, or
1: any kind well, of creative thing you're
5: working well, on? it's very much writing at the moment. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm doing this, this new Paris and Hilton's album, but uh, beyond that, uh it's 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 a lot of writing i'm trying to i'm trying to finish two novels one very ambitious the other less ambitious because it's co-written um the less ambitious one is um the end result will be a book that has one half it's just like the, the, the verso page would be text and the recto page would be um uh piano notation um so the whole book will look like a mix of musical score and a novel And it'll, you know, it'll basically be like a sort of piano or classical soundtrack to what's going on, the story of a young composer. So that's that's, that'll be fun. I'm writing that with my my friend uh, Sam who um, runs Paris and Hilton's with me. He's the he's the the talented side. I do the growling. Then there's the other side, which is going to be the other side of my life, which is going to be a novel called. At the moment, I'm calling it No with a full stop I think I might take out the full stop depending on what I can get away with and this is uh this is something I've been working on for a couple of years um I've shown it to very few people I don't really know how long it'll take but hopefully by October or so I should have it uh, done it's uh it's a novel about a disintegrating marriage and um and two generations of people fucking up basically that's all I've got in my mind at the
3: moment well, we'd like you, you're obviously very, very busy. We didn't even touch on some of the other things we know you from this episode. But uh, I, can, I can do a couple more questions if, uh, <laughs> and then I gotta go. Uh, we just want to thank you for taking time and uh, to come on and talk to us. And best of luck with oh. uh, with New Paris and the Hiltons, and and with Perfect Edge Books. No, thank you. I uh,
5: it was nice to meet everybody uh, at AWP, and um, I wish you guys uh, continued success with books as well.
1: All right, and uh, that was, once again, Caleb Ross starting out. We did uh, uh, a few minutes talking to him about uh, what he's got coming up, the re-release of Stranger Will, his relationship with Perfect Edge. and uh, YouTube, stuff like that. YouTube, YouTube. YouTube, lots of. We talked more. about YouTube. <laughs> he's such a YouTube dude. I don't know. Uh, I, I will admit, though, that every now and then I just go seek out his YouTube videos because they're pretty consistently entertaining.
3: He's an entertaining guy. Mm-hmm. So and then we talked to Phil Jordan. Um, uh, you heard again, as I mentioned it right before the uh, in the interviews, uh, a very very busy man. But um, he's busy bringing a uh, hella content to uh, to readers and and uh, audiophiles too. So at the top of the show, we played a little bit of Infidelity from Paris and the Hiltons. We just found out, as you heard, a booked exclusive at this point. Um, and uh, we're going to roll it out with the whole thing at the end. So check out Paris and the Hiltons, available everywhere fine music is available on the Internet.
1: That's right. So that wraps up uh, the Manarchy Reading. We we brought you four authors on the first one, three authors on the second one. Uh, We did interviews with Michael Gonzalez, Caleb Ross, Phil Jordan. I don't really know what more you could expect from us. I mean, we're really bringing it, guys. We need to calm (laughs) down and just like... (laughs) I don't know. why I got so defensive about that. You did all of a sudden. You were
3: like, did someone say something about us? What's going on?
1: No, I'm just very proud of these episodes. I think we did a great job
3: with them. Agreed. So again, special thanks to Pela Via and Manarchy Magazine for having us along for the ride and being cool with us recording this. As long as, as I'm sorry, as well as all the other authors, um, Gordon Highland. MC Spectacular. Um, we may have to keep him in mind for a future uh, future booked reading to have him uh, come up to Chicago and then uh, intro and outro our uh, our readers. Um, Lazy Fascist Press for bringing um, some fantastic stuff, including including I just can't say enough about Brian Allen Carr to not build um, totally awesome <laughs> performance. It reminded me a little bit of like David James Keaton reading. Like it wasn't just a reading; it was performance. That
1: so. energy and entertainment. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, um, Phil Jordan and Perfect Edge Books and their readers. Fantastic stuff, guys.
1: Yep. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, because I didn't last episode, I will definitely make sure that I embed Caleb's video version of this. If you listen to the episode and uh, want to see what Monica Drake looks like, <laughs> you can. Uh, I'll embed that in the post. And uh, we'll give links to all the, the wonderful people that were uh, included in this episode as well. Mm-hmm and
3: then don't wait a full week to come back because in just a matter of days we will have our next book review up um, The Lords of Salem we've been talking about this for a couple of months now uh, Rob Zombie and Booked alumnus Brian Evanson uh, with the novelization of the upcoming film Lords of Salem so very much looking forward to discussing that
1: absolutely it's a good week to listen to books well really any week I think I, think, I was going to
3: say except for that week when yeah. we weren't around because we were in Boston that was a little rough
1: that's okay, but we redeemed ourselves with excellent content, if you ask me. Uh, well, of course, you're the only person
3: I'm going to ask if this content was any good.
1: Right. So. That's right.
3: Yeah, unlike, unlike Phil Jordan, I don't go out looking for, for, like, please give me honest feedback. I just ask you, because you'll be like, yeah, it was great. So.
1: Yep, yep, I will fill your head with lies. All right, until next time, I'm Livius Nuddin. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.